Well, you know, life carries with it a host of personal tragedies. It does. The doctor says it's cancer. Alzheimer's begins to steal the memories of somebody you love so very, very much. A child is born dead or with a severe handicap and and dies way too soon. An accident leaves you or a loved one disabled. A hurricane, a flood, tornado, fire wipes out your home and everything you own. Personal tragedies. You know, when these things happen, our faith is often thrown into this this sea of confusion and and we feel like we're drowning in a sea of, of unanswered questions of why. Why do these things happen? There is an incredibly profound issue that has for centuries tormented many of us as human beings, and it's the issue of suffering. Now, I'm not talking about deserved suffering, like somebody that robs a bank, ends up in prison for 20 years, and and says, wow, you know, um, the accommodations aren't really that great, Uh, the food is terrible, and my roommate, yeah, questionable. And he goes, why am I suffering so badly? That's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about what appears as undeserved suffering. And here's the struggle. How do we reconcile the very real presence of suffering in our world and in our lives with the absolute biblical truth in an all-loving, all-powerful, sovereign God? How do those things fit together? I mean, we all have asked that question, I think. This is not some theoretical question that is reserved for theologians to discuss or scholars to debate and and to muse over. No, this is where you and I live. Suffering touches all of us. You know, every week as we go through those friendship registers and I read the many prayer requests, my heart breaks at the level of suffering of, of so many within this congregation. So many who are experiencing some form of financial hardship, sickness, disease, depression, betrayal, failure at work, discouragement, or even death. I mean, this is reality for us. All of us here have or are experiencing it at some level or another suffering of some kind. Eleven years ago, my wife Becky was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was diagnosed with leukemia back in March. My father-in-law passed away unexpectedly several weeks ago. We all are going through our stuff. We all are. It's just reality. The pain of suffering is everywhere. I mean, the question is, what do we do with that? How do we journey with God in the midst of our suffering? How do we keep our faith in the midst of all the pain that we're going through. And that's really what the the whole book of Job is, is about. It's one man's journey into and through some incredible tragedy, pain and suffering. And I want us today to look at Job chapter 1, where we will see a very important foundation being laid for us with regards to suffering. Now, if you need a Bible, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will loan you one. Job chapter 1. You see, one of the problems that I think many Christians have with suffering, and I would include myself in that category as well, 
is that we don't really have, at times, a large enough theological framework for us to fit this whole concept of suffering into, right? I mean, you see, when something bad happens in our life, or something bad happens in the life of somebody else, and it appears to be undeserved, unmerited, so to speak, we don't usually know how to fit that into our understanding or into the character of God. And so what happens when we suffer? If we have a very shallow theological framework for suffering, what happens when undeserved suffering comes into our life and our world? You see, we not only experience the pain of suffering, which is bad enough, but we sometimes experience the crumbling of our theology or our system of belief, the crumbling of our understanding of God and how God is supposed to work. And when that happens, we're frustrated because we think to ourselves, God is not responding the way that he is supposed to respond. And, and so what we do is we find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual crisis because we're not only suffering some tragedy, some heartache, some pain, but then we find our belief in God not working the way in which we think it should work. And so what the book of Job does is help us establish a correct theological framework for suffering. In fact, it's really placed in the first chapter, this framework for us for suffering. Now, it's not a formula. It's not a simple one, two, three steps. But in Job chapter 1, a framework for suffering is established in which we can walk through suffering in such a way that our relationship with God actually deepens and doesn't weaken. That it actually goes deeper as we're pulled more deeply into who God is and our faith isn't weakened. And I want to help us understand today how not to waste our suffering as we try to get a grip on this thing called suffering. Let's not waste it because God has something in store for us. Okay, so in this first chapter of Job, we see three critical foundational truths that are being laid for us in order for us to journey through suffering well. That's what we want to talk about this morning. How can we journey through suffering well as followers of Jesus Christ? And so the first truth that we need to know is we need to embrace the mystery of suffering. There aren't always answers. In Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we're introduced to this man, Job, and we're immediately thrust into this story where simple answers just do not work. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of, of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course... Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did this continually. He did it continually. Now, what do we immediately notice about Job? 
This guy was a spiritual stud. I mean, he was a spiritual giant when you consider the way in which he lived his life and what he did. He was an incredibly godly man, blameless. He honors God. He shuns evil. He's a great parent because he he cares about the spiritual well-being of his children, offering sacrifices on their behalf. He's an outstanding businessman, well-known in the region. And and look at the end of verse 3. It says he was the greatest man among the people of the East. Not just a great man, but the greatest. He was an incredibly good, godly person doing everything, everything right in the eyes of God and man. And yet we all know that something awful is going to happen, if you're familiar with the story of Job. Look down to verse 13. Now there was a day when when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the sand beans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell upon the young people, and they're dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. This uh, sort of takes the phrase having a bad day, right, to a whole new level. I I mean, next time I think I'm having a bad day, I'm going to read Job chapter 1 and realize that my pain and suffering isn't anything in comparison to Job's and what he went through on this day. Within a few minutes, Job is given word that his children are dead, his livestock and possessions are gone, and most all of his servants are killed. He loses everything in a matter of minutes. Can you imagine the grief, the pain, the depth of suffering that he must have experienced? I can't. I don't know that you can either. Now what the author of this book is intentionally doing is forcing us to confront what I call the mystery of suffering. The raw incongruity of it all. The awful confusion that suffering brings into our lives at times. I mean, if Job were a horrible father, I mean, think, think about this. If Job were, were a terrible dad and terrible husband, an unethical businessman, hated by everyone in his community and in the region, this story wouldn't bother us, right? I mean, if Job was this, this incredibly godless person, and this happened to him, our response might be, he got what he, what? Deserve. That's how we sometimes think. But that's not what happens here. Job is blameless. And all this awful stuff is happening to him, and immediately we are confronted with the truth that suffering does not fit the neat and tidy categories that we all want to try to put it into. It doesn't fit. There is a little axiom that I think we all tend to live by 
And here it is. That good things happen to good people. Yeah. I mean, deep down, many of us believe that this is how life works. Or this is how life should work. In fact, there are some scriptures that would seem to indicate that this is how life works. Both positive and negatively. But Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. There is certainly some truth to a direct cause and effect in life. We make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. But what do we do when we're living life in a God-honoring fashion and things don't work out? How does that fit into our theological framework? What do we do with things like that? You know, but a cause and effect reality is sometimes for some Christians as deep as their theology and understanding of God in life goes. Just that deep. Cause and effect. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And that's as far as their theology and understanding of God and his word go. If we do the things that God wants us to do, we'll be protected from tragedy and suffering, and we will be blessed and healthy is a theology that's out there. There are those who have what I would call a formula or their philosophy of for how life works until something bad happens. Diagnosis, bad car accident, lost job, and, and we pray and we believe God and, and, and nothing changes. Nothing happens. What do we do with that? Suffering continues. And you see, when God isn't working the way that we think he should, there are typically three responses. The first option, the first response may be to throw ourselves more wholeheartedly into what I would call our formula for life. We pray harder. We claim more of God's promises. We give more. We attend church more. And we work at becoming the most godly example that we can become. And after all, God owes us. Look at how I'm living my life. Well, a second option, a second approach to dealing with this incongruity of of, of God and suffering and living a God-honoring life is when God isn't working the way that we think he should is we redefine God. We redefine who he is and how he works. You know, he's obviously not who we thought he was, and so let's redefine God. Well, this was the approach of a man by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner who wrote the book a number of years ago when bad things happen to good people. This was his approach. And he came to this approach because he had watched his son die from a horrible disease, and, and he wrestled, he genuinely wrestled with that theologically in terms of who God is. And Kushner came to the conclusion that God was loving, but not powerful enough to do anything to heal. God wants to help, but he isn't able to. And that was his conclusion, and, and, and in some bizarre way, that seemed to help him deal with the, the suffering and tragedy of his son, and, and apparently it helped him understand how to deal with this issue of suffering. But the problem is, with this view, is that it doesn't reflect the God revealed in Scripture. I, I mean, the Bible fully asserts God's absolute power and sovereign control. And so this 
option of redefining God doesn't accurately reflect the God of the scriptures. Well, a third option for some when God isn't working the way that we think that he should is to simply choose to give up on God altogether. You know, a lot of people are like this, and and I think this is really at the root of atheism in our world today. You know, they just choose to give up on God altogether. You know, people look at all the suffering all around them, the famines, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, the hurricanes, and, and what they do is they scoff at this idea of a loving and powerful God. Right? You can see how people could draw that conclusion logically. And this is the place where many people become skeptical of Christianity. They look at the suffering all over the world like the tragedy that we see going on right now in Somalia with the, the hundreds of thousands of, of women and children and men that are starving. And they scoff. And they ridicule. They scoff at the idea of a loving and powerful God. You can see how they could easily draw that conclusion. But all of these responses that some may have, this, this kind of scriptural formula approach, the, the redefinition of, of, of God approach, and, and the cynical uh, approach, all of them are attempts to remove the mystery of suffering in the world today. These are basically approaches to to wanting to control God, to make God fit into our nice, neat little categories of of God and how life works. To really minimize God, minimize the God of the Bible. See, the cynic says, if God doesn't act the way I think he should, then I don't need to submit to him, right? I don't even need to believe in him. I can do my own thing. The one who redefines God is basically saying, look, I don't really like the God that is revealed in the Bible. And so I'm going to change him to fit my preferences and how I view life and how I view him. The religious formula person is committed to if I do this, this and this, if I claim this scripture and this scripture, God must bless me. God should bless me. God needs to bless me. He owes me. Look at how I'm living. Well, newsflash, God doesn't owe us anything. Doesn't owe us anything. None of these approaches embraces what I would call this mystery of suffering. It doesn't embrace God's work in the world that says, sometimes... God allows suffering and tragedy, and we don't know why, and we won't know why. The book of Job really forces us to enter into this chaos, the discomfort, the awkwardness of embracing this mystery of suffering. Write this verse down, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. It says that the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us. The reality is that we need to embrace the mystery of suffering and understand and embrace and recognize the reality that God holds some things to himself. And there are other things that he would reveal to us. And so let's 
as we build a, a correct theological framework of life in God, let's understand that there is an element when it comes to suffering and tragedy that we must simply embrace the mystery of suffering. There are not always answers to the things that are going on in our world today. And be satisfied with that because he is God and I am not. Okay? Well, that's the first foundational truth that we need to know in order to be able to walk well through a season of suffering. Well, the second truth that we must know if we want to walk well through a season of suffering is to recognize the origin of suffering. It's not from God. Recognize the origin of suffering. It's not from God. Look with me beginning at verse 6 of Job chapter 1 through verse 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord... And Satan also came from among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Well, Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is a look behind the scenes of the tragedy that gets dumped on Job. The windstorm that kills his children, the fire from the sky, and the attacks upon his livestock. All of this is the result of this conversation between Satan and God. And we learn a great deal through this exchange. We learn a great deal about God, and we learn a great deal about Satan. First of all, and it's very important to notice, who is the the instigator, the initiator of the tragedies that happened to Job and his family? I mean, whose idea was it to kill, steal, and destroy? Satan. Satan, who was the instigator, he was the architect of these terrible things that... That befell Job. He was and he still is. Understand. Hear me. He was and he still is the architect of these things even today in our world. Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10 that the thief, that is Satan, comes only to do this. Steal, kill, and destroy. Right up front we realize God is not the originator of evil. God didn't make a world with robbery. He didn't make a world with violence. He didn't make a world with war. God did not make a world with sickness and tragedy and suffering and death. He didn't. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 give us a picture of the kind of world that God made. It was a world without suffering, without evil, without death. It was a world of beauty and of life. When Adam and Eve sinned, this beautiful world was thrust into a rebellion 
and all sorts of destruction were unleashed. But none of that is God's heart. None of that was God's doing. It was ultimately rooted in Satan's work in a fallen world. The book of Job will not allow us to charge God with being the initiator of evil and suffering. You with me on that? But having said that, we also need to see that the book of Job will not allow us to minimize God's power and God's authority. Everything in this passage speaks of God's sovereign, absolute control. His absolute authority in a world that is His. We see this in verse 6 as the angels come to present themselves to the Lord and, and Satan also comes along with them as servants. Get this, as servants needing to report to their superior. I mean, don't miss this. God is the center of this story. He is the one who is in authority here. We also see in verses 10, 11, and 12 that that Satan must ask God for permission to do anything to Job and his family. I mean, Satan can't just decide to do something. He must ask God's permission. This is not a picture of God and Satan sort of battling things out on this level playing field where God is winning some battles and and Satan is winning some other battles, as, as some would believe and as some would even teach. We don't see that pictured here. What we see is God who is in absolute sovereign control of everything. There's nothing here to support the idea that God really wants to help but can't. Nothing to support that idea. Nothing. Realize that God's protective hand is always there around you and you need to trust him. That hedge of protection that Satan had talked about, that God had placed around Job, that hedge of protection that God has placed around you is a reality. It is a truth. And because it is a reality and a truth, you must, you need to trust him. As you are walking in fellowship with Jesus, know that there isn't anything, anything that can come into your life that hasn't first gone before God's throne for his permission permission or for his approval. Nothing, nothing, nothing. As I've gone back to review the journal that I was keeping when I was first diagnosed with leukemia on March 10th, In some of the days that followed, I wrote this, and this was the day after I was diagnosed with leukemia. And I wrote this in my journal. I said, Abba, this is a real reality life check. I should have put, duh. (laughs) I go on to write and I go, I I don't know why. I, I don't understand. I'm scared. I'm really scared. But I know you have the power to heal. And that's my prayer. Lord, heal me. But more than being healed, may I learn the lessons I need to learn so that I can better serve and glorify you. You allow this in my life for a reason. But most of all, may you be glorified in my life through this ordeal. Your son, Kent. 
Just as an aside, when I go back to my oncologist in September, I find out the effectiveness of my chemo treatment. But no matter what the outcome is, I know that God is in absolute control. I can trust him fully. I don't minimize the seriousness of the cancer, nor do I allow it to control my life and allow it to fill me with anxiety and fear and dread because I have a God who is in control. Amen? Job chapter 1 boldly asserts that God is in absolute control and we can trust Him. We can trust Him. But that leads to a very obvious question. If God is not the author of evil and God is absolutely in control, then why does He allow suffering? Why did he let Satan do this awful stuff to Job? Why do awful things happen to so many people? Right? This is at the heart of our struggle. I mean, how can a good God allow suffering? That's a question that has troubled everyone at some level, at some time. If God really is loving... If God really is all-powerful, why not stop the suffering from happening? And this is where the book of Job gives us the answer. But not necessarily the answer that you or I want. We want God to tell us exactly why we're struggling, why we're suffering, why tragedy has happened. Why can't I find that job? Why did that accident happen? Why did cancer take my spouse? Why, why, why? We desperately want to know why. But notice in the story of Job, and even as you read through the entire book of Job, when God reveals himself to him, Job still doesn't get the answer to why. Notice the story of of Job. Job is not privy to the conversation that had taken place between God and Satan. Job was clueless as to what was going on. He didn't know, didn't understand. Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. And oftentimes, or most of the time, nor do we. So why doesn't God tell Job why these things are happening? Why? I thought about that. Why doesn't God tell us why these awful things at times are happening to us? God, why did I get cancer? Why did this tragedy happen? Why? Why? Well, there's a very important profound answer that's revealed in this passage which leads us to the third critical foundational truth that will allow us to journey through suffering well and that's this suffering is a test of love suffering is a test of love and we need to respond to God in worship think again about the dialogue between Satan and God I mean what really is at the heart of this dialogue between Satan and God. What's at the heart of the conversation going on here? It's love. It's love. That's the issue. Look again at what Satan says to God in verses 9 to 11. He says, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? 
You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. You've got to give Satan credit here. He's put his finger on the fundamental flaw of humanity. And that fundamental flaw of humanity is self-centeredness. It's self-absorption. It's all about me. And Satan is saying to God, he's saying, of course Job follows you. Of course he loves you and and prays to you and, and thinks so highly of you. Look at all that you have done for him. He doesn't love you because of you. He only loves you because of what you give to him and what you've done for him. All the blessings you've given to him. No wonder Job serves you. Satan says if you take those blessings away, he won't love you anymore. He'll curse you to your face. Right? Isn't that what we have going on here? I think it is. But what an awful, what what an insidious insult to God that Satan is saying this to God in that dialogue. You're not worth being loved for just who you are. The only reason that these people, that's you, that's me, love you is because of what you do for them. I, I mean, this is an stinging accusation that really should make all of us a bit uncomfortable because it really gets to the core of our flesh, this self-centeredness. We see this all the time, and and even in our relationships as we walk through life. I mean, someone at work is all nice to us, and they give us gifts and compliments, and, you know, they buy our lunch for us uh, until we choose someone else for that promotion. And suddenly this person doesn't speak to us. They don't pick up the tab for lunch anymore. And we think, what's that all about? When we discover that someone is treating us lovingly just so they can get something from us, we feel what? Betrayed. Right? I mean, countless women have experienced this as they've been wined and dined by some guy to only discover that when you won't sleep with him, he's gone. This is our tendency as human beings, both men and women. All of us, we use, we manipulate to get what we want. We love people as long as we're receiving something from them in return, as long as they're feeding our ego, as long as they make us feel better. But how loving are we when we're no longer receiving from them what we want? We're not because... It's about me. You know, Satan is the ultimate cynic when it comes to genuine love. Which is why when God is boasting about how much Job loves him, Satan responds by saying this. He doesn't love you. He only loves what you do for him. In other words, these humans will never love you freely. They will never freely choose to love you. They are incapable of loving you simply for who you are, God. They will only love you as long as you bless them. That's what's going on here. It was at that moment, that very moment, that God decided to prove Satan wrong. 
God decided at that moment that he really did create humanity. He really did create us to love him solely for who he is. And not simply for selfish reasons. So how did God do this? How did God do this? God said yes to Satan. He said yes to Satan to allow him to bring suffering into Job's life. The suffering was a test of love. You see, more than anything else, God wants a people who love him freely. Who voluntarily choose to love him regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their pain, regardless of the tragedy, regardless of the suffering. God is inviting us into a passionate, dynamic love relationship with him. And this is the love that Satan is so skeptical of. And so here's the critical question. How do we grow in this love for God that we were created for? How do we grow in this love that we were originally created for? We had it back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Then sin entered the picture. And we lost it. And so how do we grow in this love? How do we move beyond this self-absorption so that we can experience a love for God more deeply? How do we do it? Suffering. Suffering. That's how. One of the things that God uses to cultivate in us this freely given love is suffering. Now this really bothers us, doesn't it? Bothers me. I mean, what kind of loving God would allow this to happen? Think about this another way. What would our lives be like if there were no suffering? If there were no tragedy? If there were no heartbreak or heartache? What if everything works in such a way that we experience no grief, no pain, no tragedy, no loss? You know what would happen? We wouldn't love God solely for who he is. You see, God uses suffering to purify our love for him. It's a means to drive us more deeply into the reservoir of of his life so that we all that we ultimately want is him, period. When we experience suffering, what's the question we all want to know? Why? Why? Right? I've had people say to me, you know, can't I think I could handle the suffering better if I just know why. If God would just tell me why. But think about that for a moment. What if God told Job? What if God said to Job, okay, dude, here's the deal. Here's the scoop. I'm going to use your story... To help millions of people in the future in this thing that's called the Bible. And your story is is going to be in it and, and it's worth it for you to hang in there. Because your story is going to be used to help millions upon millions of people. Okay? Now, so Job knows the reason why. So what happens to Job's motivation here? What happens to it? To endure the suffering. Now I think he is going to endure it because of the end result. Right? 
Because he now knows the purpose. He knows the reason. Job will endure it for the end result, not because of his love for God. Do you see that knowing the why doesn't really help us when love is God's ultimate objective? And that's what makes Job's story so powerful, so true. He didn't know the why, and he kept loving God. God wants us to love him, period. Satan doesn't think it is possible for us to love God in that way. And so God allows Satan to perform a test, not simply a test of suffering, but it's a test of love. And how does Job do in this test? Look at verses 20, 21, and 22. Then Job arose... Tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. He worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, all expressions of deep mourning and grief. But look at what he said in the midst of his pain. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice that Job doesn't say, how dare you, God? How dare you? Take from me what is mine. How dare you take from me what I have worked for, what I deserve? How could you? It doesn't say that. Because Job realized that everything he has is ultimately God's. His children were God's, not his. His livestock, all his material possessions, all of those things belong to God. They're not Job's to claim and cling to. You see, we come into this world owning nothing, right? And when we die, we take nothing with us. Everything we have is in between those significant markers is ultimately a gift from God to enjoy. God gives and God can take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, when we cling to our things, these gifts from God, when we try to build our lives upon the things that we have, we try to build our lives upon our looks, our athletic ability, our finances, our position, success, what happens when all of these things are removed? If we're building our life on anything other than God, suffering will make us more angry, more bitter, more cynical. But when we build our lives on God alone, and we hold everything else with an open hand, Suffering enables us to press more deeply into God's love for us. And when God allowed everything Job had to be taken away, I mean everything he had to be taken away, Job responds in worship, in complete and humble submission. 
He chooses to keep loving God. He passes the test, and verse 21 says, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, some of you may be thinking, You know, I don't see how this works, Kent. I just don't get it. I don't see this connection between suffering and love. How can we know God and His love in the midst of our suffering? How can it really deepen through suffering? Well, we actually have a resource that Job didn't have. Centuries after Job lived, the Son of God came to earth and he fully obeyed God the Father, right? He did everything. I mean, everything God the Father asked him to do, and God the Father crushed him. God the Father allowed Jesus Christ, his Son, to suffer. He allowed his son to be crucified as a sinner, even though he was innocent. I mean, talk about someone not deserving suffering. If anyone didn't deserve to suffer, it was Jesus, right? But why did he suffer? Love. Love for you, for me. A love that said, I so want a relationship with these people that I am willing to die in their place even if I receive nothing in return. Even if these people that I have created abandon me in my hour of need, even if they spit in my face and nail me to a cross. Jesus Christ loved you for you. Not for what you would do for him, He loved you for you. He was willing to suffer the horrors of the cross to make this love relationship possible. You see, those who cynically accuse God of being indifferent to their suffering, to their pain, to their tragedy, have never really understood the cross. Our God doesn't stand at a distance from our suffering. He's experienced it firsthand. He fully experienced it, and he did it for one reason. Love. His love for you in the midst of our suffering. In the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our faith being shaken to its core, we can look to the cross and we can experience the depth of His love for us in a way that we've never experienced it before. He really does love you. Even when we don't understand why. Because nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Amen? Now you may be here this morning. I would imagine in a a group this size that you're going through something very difficult. Some tragedy, some heartache, some hurt, some suffering. And you're in need of an infusion of God's love, of His grace and His mercy this morning this grace and mercy and blessing to pour over you. As this song is being sung, titled Blessing, as it's being sung for us, and if you want to acknowledge your circumstances to God and acknowledge those circumstances to those who might be around you, as this song is being sung, go ahead and stand in a prayerful way and remain standing until the song is completed because we want to pray for you. We want to pray specifically God's blessing and His love to be poured over you.